Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the unanimous opinion in Shank versus United States rises high on many lists of worst Supreme Court decisions for its constraints on free speech. The defendant was Charles T. Shank, General Secretary of the U.S. Socialist Party. He and his colleagues distributed flyers opposing the draft in World War I. The court ruled that their free speech rights could be restricted since obstruction of the draft violated the Espionage Act of 1917. In his opinion, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, quote, Words which ordinarily, and in many places, would be within the freedom of speech protected by the First Amendment may become subject to prohibition when of such a nature and used in such circumstances as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils which Congress has a right to prevent." Unquote. Holmes's argument also included the idea that, quote, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic, unquote. Mr. Schenck spent 10 years in federal prison for sedition and obstruction. Holmes went on to defend free speech rights in other cases. He argued that Mr. Schenck's actions constituted a crime in wartime only. Ideas about what constitutes free and false speech and clear and present danger changed in subsequent years. The Shank decision was partially overturned in 1969, but we still face many of the same questions. What are the limits of free speech? Does misinformation sometimes present a clear and present danger? When is false speech punishable? And who is best qualified to make such determinations? Legal scholar Cass Sunstein has been grappling with these questions. His new book is Liars, Falsehoods and Free Speech in an Age of Deception. In this talk, you'll hear how his initial inkling of how to confront lying and misinformation led to unexpected conclusions. Town Hall Seattle presented this event on April 1st, 2021, as part of their civics series. Town Hall's Candace Wilkinson Davis moderated the program. Please note, Professor Sunstein's dog, clearly and presently excited by the early stages of the talk, does quiet down in due time to listen in with the rest of us. Cass Sunstein is an author and professor at Harvard Law School, where he's the founder and director of the program in behavioral economics and public policy. He was the administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs during the Obama administration and the recipient of the 2018 Holberg Prize, sometimes described as the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Law and the Humanities. In 2020, the World Health Organization appointed him as chair of its technical advisory group on behavioral insights and sciences for health. 
He's the author of hundreds of articles and dozens of books, including the New York Times bestseller, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, written with Richard Thaler, uh, which was published in 2008. In 2013, he published Simpler, The Future of Government, and in 2014, he wrote Wiser, Getting Beyond Groupthink to Make Groups Smarter, with co-author Reed Hastie. Sunstein's new book, Liars, Falsehoods, and Free Speech in an Age of Deception, is the subject of tonight's talk. Please join me in welcoming Cass Sunstein. Thank you so much, Candace. Thank you, Seattle. Um, uh, no sleepless in Seattle jokes here, but gratitude for uh, Town Hall Seattle hosting me. Um, and my dog is uh, barking with enthusiasm at the fact that I get to speak to you all in Seattle. Um, this is a book, I'll give you the genesis. It was originally intended by the author to be a kind of manifesto about the terribleness of uh, a system in which lies are pervasive and causing all sorts of terrible problems. And it was going to be a manifesto in favor of uh, restrictions, uh, both by government and by private entities on damaging falsehoods. And I was going to do it with a commercial publisher, uh, that manifesto. Um, and the commercial publisher liked the idea of a kind of pro-democracy, ironically, anti-falsehood book. Uh, as I continued to work on the project, I became more um, ambivalent about the idea of understanding this project as a kind of plea for censorship of a certain kind and became much more excited about protection of even falsehoods in a system of democratic self-government. And what you're about to hear is the tension between the original manifesto project and let's say the more considered and pro-freedom uh, author that I became in the course of writing the book. Okay, here are some epigraphs for you. The first is from Michael Robottom, a wonderful mystery writer who, in a recent book called Good Girl, Bad Girl, writes as follows. Some lies are selfish. Some inflate or conflate or mitigate or simply omit. Some are told for good reason. People lie because they think it doesn't matter. They lie because telling the truth would mean giving up control, or the truth is inconvenient, or they don't want to disappoint, or they desperately want it to be true. I've heard them all. I've told them all. My second epigraph is from Hannah Arendt in a great essay about truth and uh, life and truth and politics. And the money quotation from Professor Arendt is this, seen from the viewpoint of politics, truth has a despotic character. It is therefore hated by tyrants who rightly fear the competition of a coercive force they cannot monopolize. And it enjoys a rather precarious status in the eyes of governments. My third epigraph is from uh, someone you've heard of, William Shakespeare, and I hope you're going to notice the puns, the astonishing puns in Shakespeare's sonnet. When my love swears that she is made of truth, 
I do believe her, though I know she lies, that she might me think me some untutored youth, unlearned in the world's false subtleties, thus vainly thinking that she thinks me young, although she knows my best days are past. Simply I credit her false speaking tongue on both sides thus is simple truth suppressed. What's going on here is she's kind of lying about thinking he's young and uh, he's kind of lying about thinking she's faithful. On both sides thus is simple truth suppressed, but wherefore says she not she is unjust and wherefore say not I that I am old Oh, love's best habit is in seeming trust. An age in love loves not to have years told. Therefore, I lie with her and she with me. And in our faults by lies, we flattered be. That's Shakespeare. In a famous Supreme Court opinion, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Supreme Court Justice, wrote, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. Right now, in 2021, a lot of people are falsely shouting fire in crowded theaters, and they are causing panics. In some cases, think maybe about coronavirus. Their lies lead to illnesses and deaths. In other cases, think maybe about January 6th of this year, their lies cut at the heart of democratic self-government. Some of those lies come from foreign governments and they're pervading the United States today. Some of them are homegrown. They come from American politicians, American uh, provocateurs, American journalists. They come from public officials and from politicians and those who support them. Notwithstanding these points, my first point here, my first goal here, and this is what I came to in the course of doing this book, is to deepen the foundations of what many people now consider to be a jarring idea. In general, falsehoods ought not to be censored or regulated even if they are lies. Let's put that in large font and big letters. In general, falsehoods ought not to be censored or regulated, even if they are lies. Free societies protect them. Public officials shouldn't be allowed to act as the truth police. You might be asking why, that's a very good question. A key reason is that we can't trust officials to separate truth from falsehoods. Their own judgments are not reliable. The last hundred years of history attest to that point, and their own biases get in the way. If officials are licensed to punish falsehoods, they will soon end up punishing dissent. Justice Robert Jackson, my favorite Supreme Court justice ever, I confess, wrote, and what I'll also confess is the greatest opinion in my view in the long history of the United States Supreme Court. What is my third confession? In my view, the greatest sentence 
ever written in the Supreme Court opinion, and here's how it goes. Those who begin coercive elimination of dissent soon find themselves exterminating dissenters. Compulsory unification of opinion achieves only the unanimity of the graveyard. The best response to falsehoods isn't to punish or censor them, but to, to correct them. Punishment or censorship can fuel oxygen, can fuel falsehoods. In some contexts, punishments or censorship operate like oxygen. These are time-honored ideas, but in some ways they're now on the defensive. We need to understand them better and appreciate them more. We need to make them ours. We need to do that above all to protect against government overreach, but also to allow freedom to flourish in magazines and newspapers, on the airwaves, and also online and on social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. So if this were a song, you've just heard the main theme. Here comes the counter theme, the book that I originally intended to write. My second goal is to qualify the conclusions you've just heard and to take some of them back. The great British poet, William Blake, wrote some words commenting on lectures by the great artist, Sir Joshua Reynolds. Sir Joshua Reynolds in his lectures praised generalization and talked about its importance. William Blake wrote in the margin, just in handwriting, to generalize is to be an idiot. To particularize is the alone distinction of true merit. And blank, Blake added, I thank God I am not like Reynolds. I am going to aim not to be like Reynolds and will contend that notwithstanding what I've said, government should have the power and so should Twitter and Facebook to regulate some lies and falsehoods at least if they can show, be shown to be really harmful by any objective measure. In a slogan, false statements are not constitutionally protected if the government can demonstrate that they threaten to cause serious harm that can't be avoided through a more spe speech protective route. That's a mouthful and I'm going to try to uh, unpack it a bit. I'm also going to suggest that when actual lies are involved, when people are saying things that they know to be false, the government may impose regulation on the basis of a somewhat weaker demonstration of harm than is required for unintentional falsehoods. So to kind of run that to ground, if someone says about a neighbor, that person's a drug addict and furthermore is selling cocaine, every day between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. That's more easily regulable than if the person says, you know what, I heard a rumor that a politician uh, committed a terrible crime a year ago. When the person innocently says that, reporting a rumor that they believe to be true. That's more protected than the lie. Okay. So you've heard the main theme, which is very pro-freedom of speech, and you've heard the counter theme. In accordance with the counter theme, the government should be able to regulate doctored videos, whether when they're defamatory for sure, and perhaps even when they are not, 
to ensure that people who see a doctored video showing you or your child or your sibling perhaps committing a crime or doing something horrific, the government ought to be able to make sure that at least the people who see that are informed that that didn't happen. Facebook and Twitter, because they are private entities, have more room to maneuver. One of my main goals is to draw attention to the diversity of tools for dealing with falsehoods. Government doesn't have to just censor or punish. It might, for example, as in the Dr. Video example I gave, require disclosure or some form of architecture on the platform that reduces the likelihood that false, falsehoods will spread. I'm also going to suggest that private institutions, including Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, magazines, television networks, websites, if they're private, have more room than governments to slow or stop the spread of lies and falsehoods. Some of them are doing good things already, and it would be very nice if they would do more. Okay, now you have the theme and the counter theme. Um, the basic reason for the counter theme is that with respect to many questions today, people find themselves in a state of vertigo. That's not good for health or safety or for democracy. St. Augustine a long time ago said when regard for truth has been, has been broken down or even weakened, all things will remain doubtful. That's a profound statement. When regard for truth has been broken down or even weakened, all things will remain doubtful. We're not really there, but we're in a situation where that uh, tragic state of affairs is recognizable. Hannah Arendt, more recently than St. Augustine, but not yesterday, warned, the chances of factual truth surviving the onslaught of power are very slim indeed. Truth is always in danger of being maneuvered out of the world, not only for a time, but potentially forever. Facts and events are infinitely more fragile things than axioms and discoveries and theories produced by the human mind. Facts and events occur in the ever-changing affairs of people and in, in which flux is, there's nothing more permanent, the, the admittedly relative permanence of the human mind's structure. Okay, now you've heard the theme, pro-freedom, and the counter theme to generalize is to be an idiot. And I'm going to try to introduce a framework. And what you're about to hear is the last chapter of the book I wrote. I wrote it because a friend and um, reader of the book said, I, I like your book, it should be published, but you don't have a framework. Please give us a framework. And I thought, you know, he's right. And so the first chapter of the book was a is a response to his plea. Okay, here's the framework. There are a ton of falsehoods out there and they're different from each other. A cry of fire might be a lie designed to create a stampede. Or it might be an innocent mistake coming from someone who saw smoke from audience members who were lighting up cigarettes. 
a seller of a car might lie about the vehicle's gas mileage. On a date, a guy might lie about his athletic achievements. Someone might perjure himself saying he wasn't at the scene of the accident when he was. Someone might make an innocent error, even in court, mistakenly, but sincerely identifying someone as a perpetrator of a crime. Someone might say climate change isn't real. The science is unreliable because they believe the science is unreliable. Someone might say, don't get vaccinated uh, from COVID-19 because the vaccine will kill you. And anyway, COVID-19 isn't real. And they might be evil or mischievous. They might know what they've just said is false. These are different kinds of falsehoods and they raise very different questions. If we're really on a mission to excise lies and falsehoods from human life, we probably don't have much of a sense of humor. They're built into the human condition. Some of them are fun or part of life. Some of them aren't fun at all and ought not to be part of life. To get at the diversity, we need to focus on, forgive me, four sets of issues and we need to keep them separate. I tried to have two sets of issues because simpler is better. I got four. The first of the four is the speaker's state of mind and hence their level of culpability. In saying something that is false, people might be lying. They might be reckless. They might be not reckless, but negligent, or they might be completely reasonable, but mistaken. So I mean to identify a continuum here between someone who was saying the election was stolen, believing that's false, someone saying the election was stolen, not quite believing it's false, but having no reasonable grounds to think it, so it's just reckless and self-serving, someone saying the election was stolen, they're not reckless, they've read some stuff that supports it, but they shouldn't think it, they're just ne they're negligent, and someone saying the election was stolen because on the basis of what they've read, that's what they believe. And I'm stipulating that in that case, it's reasonable, but just happens to be wrong. It really matters what category we're talking about. The difference between lying, intentionally saying my neighbor is a cocaine dealer and uh, making a reasonable mistake about climate change or about you know, whether an aspirin a day is a good thing for heart disease, that makes a big difference. The difference between intentional lying and recklessness might be less clear, but there is a difference. As we go in the direction from innocence to intentional lying, the argument for protecting the speech gets less strong. That's the first of my quartet. The second is the magnitude of the harm. And let's put magnitude in capital letters, or at least the M, magnitude of harm. This isn't a very elegant expression, but that's what, we're, that's what we got. All that's meant by that is how much damage is caused by the falsehood. Here again, we have a continuum, and let's mark four points on the continuum, catastrophic, bad, moderate, and non-existent. A catastrophic harm would be, for example, a lie 
that it's going to start a war or cause a lot of deaths. A non-existent harm would be someone saying, for example, that uh, LeBron James is the greatest basketball player who ever, ever lived. That's false. Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player who ever lived. But that statement about LeBron James, forgive me LeBron James fans, is a harmless mistake. We could imagine a statement that is destructive of someone's reputation. Wouldn't be exactly catastrophic harm, but it would be toward uh, the continuum in the direction of the catastrophic compared to the non-existent. So all I'm suggesting here is in deciding whether a falsehood can be regulated, it really matters whether we're talking about catastrophic harm or no harm at all. And now you have half of the framework, the state of mind and the magnitude of the harm. The third question is the likelihood of the harm. So if you have someone saying something, let's say about automobile safety or about a chemical and whether it's dangerous, let's say, or whether a product will do something good or bad, you can imagine certain harm. It's 100% gonna happen. You can imagine it being probable. It's more, more likely than not. You can imagine it being improbable. There's like a one in three chance it's gonna happen, one in five. And you can imagine it's highly improbable. One in a hundred, one in a thousand chance of harm. If someone prominently says online that people under the age of 80 can't get COVID-19, that is certainly going to cause some harm. If a student announces in a class, John F. Kennedy was never president, he was actually vice president, it's highly improbable, actually it's vanishingly improbable, that that's going to cause any harm. I suggest it really matters where we are on the continuum from certain harm to highly improbable harm. The last of our four questions, so we're done with the framework now, is the timing of harm. For timing, we can distinguish among imminent, it's gonna happen within an hour, um, soon in the sense that it's gonna happen in the near future, not far off in the sense that it's going to happen, let's say in a few months and distant. Let's say it's gonna happen in two years, three years, four years. If someone is libeled, if you say about someone that they are you know, engaged to their murder or something, that creates imminent harm. It happens like that. If you say that smoking is good for you, you tell someone that, it's probably not going to create imminent harm. Someone might smoke a cigarette, but the likelihood that's gonna cause imminent harm to the person rather than distant harm, pretty small. Really matters whether we're thinking about immediate or distant. And the reason is clear that if the harm is distant, then we might say, you know what, the best approach is to let people talk, let them correct the error. If it's gonna happen immediately, then there's no time for the talk. You have to stop the speech in order to prevent the harm. Now we have the framework, meaning we're looking at the state of mind of the speaker, 
the magnitude of the harm, the likelihood of the harm, and the timing of the harm. It's simple. We have four points on the continuum for each of these, which means that they could be mixed and matched in numerous ways, 256 to be precise, and it would be not that difficult to contract, construct a matrix with 256 boxes and try to give an indication of how to resolve the constitutional or free speech issue on the basis of which box we have. But as an act of mercy, let's not do that, shall we? Let's not create a matrix which 256 boxes is uh, presented to you on a Thursday night. And let's instead just keep it simple and say that with respect to each of the four factors, as we get to the extreme end of the continuum in terms of danger and badness, the argument for allowing restrictions grows. And as we get to the extreme other end, the argument for allowing restrictions starts to evaporate. So if we have someone who lies on purpose in a way that is certain to create catastrophic harm now, the argument for punishing that person to deter it and stopping the statement from continuing is really strong. If we have someone who very innocently says something that is highly unlikely to create any kind of significant harm until let's say 2100, then the argument for regulating that falsehood is pathetic. That suggests that easy cases for regulation take the form of a lie that's gonna make something terrible happen in an hour. And the easy cases for non are at the opposite end. And we have cases over which reasonable people can differ where you might have a lie that's gonna cause not catastrophic but serious harm with a probability of over 50% not immediately, but two weeks from now. That's not an obvious case. And now we have a framework that helps us um, distinguish the obvious cases for allowing restrictions from the obvious cases for not allowing restrictions and allows us to have, I hope, um, informed debates about how to handle the harder cases. Now I hope um, the tension between the book I ended up writing, which is very pro-freedom of speech, and the book I originally hoped to write, which was a book which was drawing attention to the harmful effects of a society pervaded by um, lies on steroids that are going like wildfire through our society. Now that productive tension is resolved. All we need to know is what kind of boxes we're talking about. Okay, one of the most exciting developments in thinking about freedom of speech, and I genuinely believe it is exciting, is that the universe of tools that uh, are available to handle falsehoods and lies is expanding. For a long time, government had very few options. It could impose a jail sentence. It could fine people. It could authorize people to bring damage actions 
against people. It could require people to provide disclaimers or disclosure to people who were, let's say, libeled. But we now know online that there are plenty of tools. Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter have revealed the uh, 2021 expanded universe of potential responses to falsehoods and lies. So let's take the example of Facebook. They can remove lies, and they sometimes do. Or they can require disclosure by saying that the speaker of the lie has to disclose something. Or they can disclose themselves, like false in big letters. Or they can disclose themselves, as Twitter does, by saying, for other perspectives, see this. Or by saying this is disputed. Or they can, as Facebook sometimes does, does, put right at the top of your page a lot of truth that is meant as a corrective strategy. The architecture of platforms can be used in multiple creative ways, and we've just seen the tip of the iceberg. Falsehoods can be downgraded so that they don't appear a whole lot in people's newsfeed or the platform can educate users so they can easily find out what is true. These multiple approaches, which involve the use of the platform's architecture to try to deal with falsehoods, can range from the most aggressive to the least aggressive. The gentlest can be for the least harmful and the most aggressive for the most harmful. In 2020, Twitter got a lot of attention when it accompanied two tweets by President Trump containing false claims about the high level of fraud associated with mail-in ballots with a little label. This is what Twitter put on. Get the facts about mail-in ballots. Was Twitter right to do that? I think so. And note that this was not censorship. Okay, what we're learning is there are promising novel possibility, and promising and novel possibilities here. Social media platforms have adopted creative methods for dealing with falsehoods and lies. We need to see much more creativity than we've seen to date. And we could imagine laws that require general adoption and use of these more speech protective alternatives. I mean that because a label or a warning doesn't take anything down or threaten anyone with jail or fines. We could imagine the various tools that I've described being mixed and matched with the four scales to which I've referred, maybe for the most catastrophic lies than the most aggressive tools, take the thing down could be used and the least harmful things, the weakest, could be met with uh, disclaimers, with, with softer tools. For the uh, free speech fans out there, if you're getting a little nervous about my, um, my counter theme, notice if you would that even in the freest of free societies, perjury is not protected. If you go to the FBI and say, I saw someone uh, in the neighborhood committing a federal crime, you kind of can't do that. If I tell you, buy my book and you'll never get heart disease, 
you probably know I'm joking. So if I said that in this context, it wouldn't be fraud, but there are versions of that that are fraud and they are regulable. If you say certain things about a house that you're selling or about an automobile that you're selling that are false, those things are regulable. Okay, it's time to have, if this were music, this would be the crescendo. Return, if you would, to the general principle. False statements are protected unless the government can show that they threaten to cause serious harm that cannot be avoided through a more speech protective route. That's an effort to have a compressed version of my little framework. When lies are involved, the government can impose regulation on the basis of a weaker demonstration of harm than is usually required for unintentional falsehoods. In many cases, <coughs> the argument for protecting false statements of fact is pretty strong. A denial that climate change is real, an erroneous newspaper article on a prominent politician, an exaggerated statement about the risks posed by genetically modified organisms. In cases like this, we have good reasons to protect falsehoods. The government's own judgments, remember, about what's true and what's false aren't reliable. People can learn from false statements. Regulation of false statements might and probably will chill truthful statements. It's important for each of us to know what other people think, even if what they think is false. Banning false statements can simply drive them underground and increase their power and allure. Counter speech, that is a response to the false statement, can be far better and more effective than prohibition. Still, there's a problem, which is that these statements taken individually or as a whole don't justify the generalization that a system of free speech must always give strong protection to falsehoods and lies. Return, if you would, to perjury, fraud, and false commercial advertising. For current and coming problems like doctored, and de doctored videos and deep fakes, homilies about freedom of speech are just inadequate. The good news is that governments have a large and growing toolbox. They, consider creative, they can consider creative tools, not bans, not censorship, but disclosures, labels, warnings, and disclaimer, and, um, and other speech protective interventions. I'm not going to bore you with technical details, but current constitutional law, I suggest, as beautiful as it is and a source of national pride, doesn't quite strike the right balance. If a musician, Taylor Swift, an athlete, LeBron James, a politician, take your pick, is defamed, it's not so clear that there should be a prohibition on their being able to get, let's say, $1 and a retraction if they can demonstrate that the statement was false and harmful to their reputation. More important, maybe, in cases that involve public health and safety, lies can cost lives. And if falsehoods about health and safety create sufficiently serious risks, there are 
legitimate grounds to consider responses and for private institutions to do more than they're now doing to prevent the spread of misinformation involving health and safety and individual reputation, that's a good idea, not a scary idea. These are specific conclusions. I hope it's clear that they bear notwithstanding their specificity on some of the largest and most general questions in all of politics and law, and even in daily life itself. Hannah Arendt, one of my heroes, as you can tell for this book, put it this way, what is at stake here is the common and factual reality itself. And this is indeed a political problem of the first order. The principle of freedom of speech, I suggest, should not be taken to forbid reasonable efforts to protect reality. Thank you. All right, thank you, Professor Sunstein. Um, first, I just wanted to thank you for setting the record straight on Michael Jordan, obviously, and very clearly the best, and to say otherwise is just false. That's so probably the, the most important thing we've discussed. Yes. The front page is very great, but Michael Jordan is. No question. He's very good, but yes. Um, uh, so the first question here is, where in the quote-unquote 256 matrix uh, would you place the Dominion voting systems defamation suit for $1.6 against Fox News? I want to know more about the particular facts to say where it falls. So we know what the relevant questions are. Uh, I think I'm going to say I need to study the uh, facts long and hard before reaching a specific conclusion. I would say with respect to that libel suit that it's not the worst thing if reckless or it, or reckless meaning you say it even though you know it's false um, uh, or you really should have known it's false. It's not the worst thing if people are deterred from saying things that are damaging to reputation that they know to be false or that they really should have known to be false. If those things would hurt someone's reputation and also hurt the democratic process itself. So the fact that that lawsuit has been filed um, doesn't seem to me a reason for all of us to be weeping. It's a reason for all of us to be listening carefully. Um, I wonder if you can um, talk a little bit about um, the distinction between freedom of speech in the public sphere and freedom of speech in the private spheres. Those seem to be blurred even by our top elected officials. Um, it seems like it should be understandable, but I wonder if you can just um, talk about the legality, different, different uh, differences in those spheres. It's a beautiful question, so I really thank you for it. If, um, if the government censors speech, uh, Houston, we have a problem as a legal matter. Remember that movie? Not the greatest movie of all time, but it was a good movie. Um, so if uh, Congress says, for example, that um, certain kinds of speech involving the greatness of basketball players 
is forbidden. Uh, that would be a big First Amendment problem because the First Amendment applies to Congress explicitly and by interpretation to all government authorities. So if a public university, you know, the University of Michigan starts saying, you know, people can't say certain things, we have at least a free speech problem. By contrast, if the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal does things, the First Amendment doesn't apply. So if the New York Times says we're only going to print things that are very positive about the New York Yankees, that would be hateful. And if, you know, reason to stop reading the New York Times, but it wouldn't violate the First Amendment because the New York Times isn't bound by the First Amendment. Uh, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube are also not bound by the First Amendment. So if Facebook has policies with respect to the restriction, let's say, of sexually explicit materials that go well beyond what governments could do, and this isn't hypothetical, this is actually true, for Facebook's policies with respect to nudity, Seattle couldn't embrace that because Seattle's bound by the First Amendment. Facebook isn't. Uh, that's, um, that's part of our system. If you're getting nervous about this, that's I think that's healthy nervousness. Let me explain the reason for it and then explain why I'm, I'm nervous about it too. The reason for it is if you have a private institution, one way it expresses its freedom is by regulating the speech that it allows. So if it's the Catholic church, it has uh, religious freedom rights and also free speech rights, which means that inside the church, people can't say certain things and continue to be there. And, and that, what's true for religious institutions is true for, let's say, the, uh, uh, the vegan club, where you can't say certain things and be part of the vegan club. That, that's okay. That's how the vegan club expresses its, its freedom and is part of our pluralism. The reason I think it's good to be nervous about the distinction I just drew is that some institutions, including Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, they have such power and they have such uh, a large role in our culture that for them to be regulating speech as they see fit could, under imaginable circumstances, make us very worried about what they're doing to our system of free expression. Now, whatever you think of Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, they are completely alert to the problem, which is why their strong presumption continues, has been and continues to be, people can say all sorts of stuff on our platforms. We're not going to be like the vegan club and say that to be part of the club, you, you can't say or do certain things. Um, and some people would like to say that Twitter or YouTube or, or Facebook should be treated essentially like a government because of their size and authority. Uh, I think that would be um, a very unfortunate position to adopt, that Facebook should be allowed as a private entity to say there are some things we're just not going to allow. Bullying, for example, even though government's power to restrict bullying is very limited. So if people you know, target people or try to drive them to 
of depression or suicide, Facebook, my last I checked, would say, You're, you can't do that. You have to stop. And we'll take you off the platform if you continue. Uh, governments, they have some room to, to protect people against bullying, but not as much as a private actor does. And, and hooray for that. Yeah, it seems like we need, uh, they've kind of become the public, they've kind of become the the place for public discourse, right? So we need maybe yes. to build up so, a place where we can have that discourse. So to have a lot of discourse, I, I think that the operators of the social media platforms who are not the most popular uh, people in America today, and I should uh, disclose that I, I've been a consultant for Facebook, not a whole lot, I think a total of four hours over the past six years, but I, I, I will disclose that. I think they, they're, they're right. Talk about YouTube and Twitter, for whom I have not been a consultant, <laughs> YouTube and Twitter, I think are right broadly to be protective of free speech and, and to have that as the heart of what they're about. But I also think Twitter in particular has been forward-looking in a good way in thinking about ways to protect health and safety against the dangerous consequences of lies and falsehoods and also trying to protect the democratic process. So I'm not sure what Twitter's policy on this in particular is, but I have a hope, which is if you put on Twitter, uh, you better vote between the hours of 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. because the polls are closed otherwise, don't bother. If that's a lie, I think Twitter will take that down and uh, hooray for that. That's uh, a misuse of the platform in a way that can be uh, very destructive to the most fundamental of all rights, that is the right to, to vote. Um, another question, uh, is the Justice Department responsible to ensure that falsehoods are not misleading to the public? Is that their role? I think I should uh, duck on that one. This, and I'll tell you why. I have a, re a good reason to duck on that one, I think. So when I wrote the book, um, I was a private citizen, um, you know, just writing as a, a person who thinks about law. And I'm right now working in the Biden administration. Uh, and so anything that involves my colleagues at the Justice Department, I think I should say um, in the winter, it's colder than in the summer. Meaning something that's generally true and uh, isn't going to create any awkwardness. Um, well, I think we'll end on this on this question, um, and and maybe I'll just build it out a little bit. Um, this person is asking what what you think the the best strategy to effectively respond to lies is, um, especially if they can be harmful. And I'll just add to that, you know, what what do you hope? What are some of the actions that people take after they read your book? Great, thank you for that. So, um, uh, the social media platforms need to uh, continue to, let's say, think really hard about what their responsibilities are. And while things are better with respect to misinformation than they were five years ago, they're not as good as they should be. Meaning, and my little framework is intended to uh, help orient what 
was for me at least for a long time just a jumble to, th to think imminent harm, likely harm, catastrophic harm, state of mind of the actor. Uh, to map on the 256 boxes should be really boring. So we'll try to keep it simpler onto what Facebook and Twitter are now doing would suggest that there's a lot of stuff they should be doing that they're not doing. So there's that. With respect to governments, um, we, we do need all over the world to be thinking about the magnitude of the danger, especially if it involves health or safety and what the right response is. The right response might be to say, um, you have to have a warning. If you're gonna state certain kinds of things, you have to have a warning. That would be a speech protective approach. For libel, um, I think the Supreme Court has not struck the right balance. And this is not only a problem for individuals whose months and sometimes lives are ruined, but it's a problem for all of us when our neighbors and friends and maybe our politicians are lied about in a way that damages our capacity to evaluate them. And so the Supreme Court's decision in 1964, New York Times against Sullivan, uh, it is under new assessment, and I think that's a good thing. If, if uh, a reporter is subject, let's say, to a potential multi-million dollar damage award because they happen to make a mistake, that's really terrible. They're going to shut up, and then our system of freedom of speech really is in danger. But if they're told if they said something negligently, they have to say that was false if it's demonstrably false, and, may, and maybe pay a nominal damage award to the person who was harmed, I think that's okay. And that is Justice Thomas, with whom I frequently disagree. I think he was on to uh, something right when he said, the, the old idea about libel, it's not really mostly to protect the person who's liable, it's to protect our system. Our, our relationships with one another or, or our ability to govern ourselves. So uh, I'd, I'd like to see the, some rethinking of libel. I think for all of us to have clarity uh, deep in our heart, not just in our mind, that what we're hearing, especially when it's cruel or harsh about someone, uh, might be false is a really good thing. And maybe the note to end on, to kind of uh, put that in italics, is the coolest empirical finding in the book, I believe. It's not my own empirical finding. It's something I discovered late. Uh, it's my candidate for the coolest. It's called truth bias. And here's how it goes. If I tell you that, um, I'll, I'll do it right now. Uh, I don't know if you heard LeBron James just announced his retirement. Did you hear that? No. I just lied. Okay, I just, uh, he did not announce his retirement. No. Uh, um, now, for all of you who are listening, if you're like most people, for the next months and possibly longer, in some part of your mind, you'll be thinking, did LeBron James announce his retirement? <laughs> Maybe he did. And notice, I chose an innocuous one, innocuous-ish, um, but the, the truth bias finding is if people hear something that's false and they're immediately told it's false then they will remember it in some sense or in some part of their mind as true for the long term. That's insidious. It suggests if someone says something about Secretary Clinton's emails that's false, even for those who know it's false, 
there'll be something in their head that will say about her emails. And, and this truth bias where we tend to take things to be true in some part of our mind, even if we know they're false, that suggests that lies can have uh, a really corrosive effect. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Again, Professor Sunstein, thank you so much for staying up with us and presenting tonight. Hopefully next time we can have you in person. But until then, stay safe and have a great night. Thanks. This was a great pleasure and it's great to get to talk to you. Thank you. Town Hall Seattle presented this talk by Cass Sunstein on April 1st. We present what we can in our broadcast hour. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon. Good night.